This is our fourth week that we've been studying Judges. Tonight we're up to the theme of the recklessness of a guy named Jephthah. And it's Judges 11. We're going to read verses 29 through 40, and it reads like this. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passing through Mitzpah of Gilead. And from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, if you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return home from the Ammonites will be the Lord's. Whenever I return home in triumph from the Ammonites, excuse me, will be the Lord's. And I will sacrifice that thing or that person as an offering, a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aror to the vicinity of Minith, as far as Abel Karamim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of the timbrels? She was an only child, and except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and he cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I'm devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends, because I will never marry. You may go, he said. And he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. And this is God's word. It's again worth checking in after doing four weeks of Judges. Remember, it's important to understand that there's a cycle in Judges. And not only is the cycle repeating, but to some extent, the people and the judges, for that matter, are devolving. Um, like it's getting progressively worse, in a sense, every time that they fall and the cycle goes like this. Every time God's people get a little complacent spiritually and are doing well in life, they seem to get spiritually complacent. They seem to fall away from the true God and start falling in love with the world and the gods of this world. And they start serving those gods. And God allows the nation of those gods to actually oppress his people, the Israelites, in order to chastise them. And it usually works. It leads them to repentance. They cry out to God for mercy and God sends to them a deliverer, a rescuer. We said that the word could actually be translated savior. And uh, he or she usually ushers in some form of like military victory that restores the shalom of the land. And once again, what we have is the same thing here, but this time the oppressing nation is the Ammonites and the judge that God calls to lead Israel and usher in victory is a guy named Jephthah. Now Jephthah is an absolutely fascinating character. We didn't read uh, much from the beginning or any from the beginning of chapter 11 earlier, but we get a background on Jephthah that says, okay, his, he has a dad named Gilead, but he also lives in a region named Gilead. And that's a little bizarre. Couple that with the fact that we're told his mother was a prostitute. And a lot of Bible commentators have actually suggested, okay, wait a second, go back to Gilead. Maybe that's not actually his dad's name. Maybe that's some kind of symbolic name. Either maybe he doesn't know who his dad is. Maybe his dad is like this, he's symbolic of the people of Gilead at that time. In other words, the people of Gilead were people who uh, were the types of guys that frequented prostitutes or something like that. 
what we do know for sure is that his brothers hated him. And his brothers wanted him gone. They didn't want them to share in their father's inheritance because he wasn't a real son or whatever. They kicked him out of the house. So any way you slice it, it's a highly like dysfunctional family. And he travels to this place called Tob, and we're told, the text tells us that he amasses something of a, I think the phrase in the NIV is something like a gang of scoundrels. So clearly some shady characters, some violent individuals, and uh, yet Jephthah actually develops a reputation for being a really good military leader. Like he is, he's got something about him that's charismatic enough that all these guys want to follow him and like do his bidding. He's like the leader of these vigilante outlaws. So Jephthah is essentially like an organized crime. He's, he's a total outcast. He's from a broken home. He leads a gang. But he's, he's not just like street smarts. He, he's got some smarts beyond that too and it would be dismissive of him to think of him just as like a gang leader because actually when the Israelites recruit him to help fight off the oppression of the Ammonites, his first instinct is not to go to war. His first instinct is actually to send some messengers to the king of the Ammonites and actually he makes this really comprehensive, coherent like legal argument as to how the properties that they have taken from the Israelites historically belong to the Israelites. He goes back to the exodus from Egypt of the Israelites and he cites specific events from over 300 years prior. In other words, this is a guy who knows his history. He knows his law. And so it'd be dismissive just to think of him as like this bloodlusting, violent kind of guy. He's all sorts of uh, charismatic, enigmatic brilliant leader, but that's actually part of the problem, is Jephthah's leadership competence and his unique gifting, in some respects, just totally outpaces spiritual maturity. That's always a dangerous combination. Well, uh, Jephthah is nonetheless going to be a guy that leads the Israelites for God's purposes. And in the same way that we're going to look at Samson next week, a guy whose talents outpace his spiritual maturity. And we can see it with Jephthah, even though he's very effective at doing what he does in battle. And that's actually our second plot point is we're going to jump to verses 32 and 33, just a decisive victory. The text actually says very little about the battle. It's a succinct summary, a little bit of geography, and it mentions that Jephthah and his men take over 20 strongholds of the Ammonites, specifically lands that, reclaiming lands that belonged to the Israelites, but doesn't say much more than that. It does give credit where credit is due. Specifically, the text records for us, the Lord is the one who is doing this. The Lord gave the Ammonites into Jephthah's hands. But the really interesting thing is actually before he even goes into battle, Jephthah makes a vow. And it's an interesting window into his character where he's seemingly bargaining with God. Let me go back to verses 30 and 31 here. So here's what it says. If you give the Ammonites into my hands... Whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return from triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Now, there's a number of considerations that we have to really digest here in order to understand what's really being said, but let's just keep it simple at first. At the very least, what we can tell he's doing here is he's bargaining with God, and that's a problem. That's going to be probably our main application point here in a little bit when we get to the application section. But he's bargaining with God. And what exactly is Jephthah's bargain? What is the vow that he's making here? On a superficial level, what it seems to be is, see, in the ancient world, just like in modern times, vows 
are not really uncommon or they're not necessarily wrong. So we have a number of biblical characters who are faithful individuals who make vows to God. And for that matter, in Leviticus 27, we have a very specific outline for how Israel is supposed to go about carrying out their vows to God and the specified sacrifices for those vows. On top of all that, we also know it probably wasn't that uncommon for like choice animals that could be kept safe for sacrifices to be kept in the homes of the Israelites at this time. So what most Bible commentators will say is when Jephthah makes this vow where he's going to sacrifice or dedicate or whatever, the first thing that walks out of his house is he's probably envisioning that an animal is going to come out of the house and he's going to offer that as a sacrifice to God, uh, a celebration of the victory that God has given to him. The problem, of course, is that when he comes home, his words were somewhat careless and the first creature that exits from the front door of his home is not an animal, it's a daughter. It's his only child. And at that point, it's like, well, okay, I am a warrior who is a man of his word and I have to follow through as tough as it may be on the oath that I made to God. If that's actually what happened, and I'm not saying it is, although a lot of people, it's possible, and a lot of people might suggest that is what it is. If that's what we're supposed to uh, take from this, then the lesson would seemingly be, watch your words, don't say stupid stuff, don't hastily sign foolish contracts, and if you make stupid vows, by all means, if they perpetuate further sin, don't follow through on your stupid vows. Don't stupidly follow through on stupid vows, right? That's certainly an application of this text. I don't think it's probably the main application, and I'm not even going to include it fully in the application section, in part because, of course, like, of course, don't say stupid stuff. Of course, don't make foolish vows. Of course, if those vows would potentially lead you to doing further sin, don't go through with the vow, right? So there's a level of just like obvious superficial of course about that, even though it's a fair application. The reason I don't even think it's a main application also is because there are significant questions about this text from Scripture. There's probably a good dozen or so of them, but I'm just going to share with you like two, three, four of them. Interestingly, the Hebrew participle that is translated when it says, whatever comes out of the door of my house, it's masculine. And what Bible scholars will tell you is when it's in masculine form, Jephthah probably would have been anticipating, therefore, a human so if Jephthah had in mind to sacrifice an animal coming out of his home, he would have used the neuter form of that Hebrew participle. Not to mention the fact that Jephthah is a guy who we already established, he knows Israelite history really well, right? So he's, got, he's well-versed with their law. He would have known that the Lord God of Israel does not accept human sacrifices like some of the other pagan gods do. He would have known that there are other people in his life from friends and family who if the, at the thought of him sacrificing his daughter would have intervened and said, don't do something like that. That's terrible. Not to mention the fact that, okay, where is he going to make the sacrifice? Because Jephthah, again, a student of history and a student of Israelite law would have known that he is not qualified to make a sacrifice. Only the priests make sacrifices at the tabernacle at Shiloh. Even considering for like kind of a corrupted spiritual period, the idea that a priest would have been okay with making a human sacrifice at Shiloh doesn't completely seem to add up. 
Uh, there's other things. Built into the provisions of the Mosaic law, there is an idea that somebody who is dedicated to the Lord can be redeemed, can be bought back with a price. If it's that easy of an out, why doesn't he just do that? And finally, one other point would be, again, Leviticus 1 is very clear about this. A burnt offering to the Lord must be a male without defect. So even notwithstanding the fact that of the immorality of offering up a human being in sacrifice is the fact that it's a daughter. Technically, she wouldn't even qualify for this type of burnt offering. So there are some significant questions about like a superficial reading of this text. The question then is, is there any other possible understanding and interpretations of it? And there are, and it's a fairly technical thing, but this is, this is the art of like translation and uh, Bible scholarship. I know you can't read that, but verse 31, that letter that I have highlighted in yellow is a vav, a Hebrew vav. Now, oftentimes, most of the time, probably we translate it with the conjunction and. It can also be translated with the conjunction, however, or. If you switch an or for an and with that one little vav, it can change the meaning of the text entirely. And in that case, when you translate it, you can say, whatever comes out of the door of my house will be the Lord's, if it's a person, or I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering if it's an animal that walks out of the house. See? Uh, I would venture to say, Perhaps most Bible scholars today will fall on that kind of understanding of uh, this particular text. The question then becomes, okay, if I'm dedicating this person to the Lord, what we understand then is Jeph Jephthah would be dedicating his daughter for service to the Lord at the tabernacle in Shiloh. And we have record of many women whose lives had been dedicated for service at the tabernacle. We, have, we know that happened. The question then is, okay, well, they seem to be mourning pretty sorrowfully when this happens, Jephthah and his daughter. So why are they mourning so much if it's simply a matter of dedication? Well, they're still losing something. So you have this young woman who the text goes out of its way to emphasize the fact that she's a virgin, unmarried. And what he's saying, when you're dedicated to the Lord and service at the tabernacle, you're not going to get married, you're not going to have any children. I know plenty of women who for one reason or another are unable to conceive and have to go through a grieving process of not being able to bear children. So she's mourning this process. For that matter, okay, why is Jephthah then mourning? Well, Jephthah's not only sorry then for his daughter because it was his negligence in making this vow, but you got to remember who Jephthah is. This is a guy who, again, we're not even completely certain that he knew exactly who his father was, or he certainly didn't have any kind of relationship with him, to such a degree that he got no inheritance. That was the whole reason the brothers wanted to kick him out of the house. He got no inheritance, and so he's worked his entire life to get to this point where he reclaims a bunch of land, and his legacy is he's going to be passing it on to his ancestors. And guess what? The irony of it all is he's reclaimed all of the land, but he's got no ancestors to, to pass it on to. No matter how hard you work in life, you can't control your legacy like that. So which is it in all of this? Which interpretation? I'm going to be honest with you, I don't completely know. Uh, but you land in about the same spot. Whatever technically happened back then, you land in some of the same lessons. If Jephthah did, in fact, offer his daughter as a burnt offering, he made an insane mistake that was even far worse than the stupid vow that he made earlier. On the other hand, if Jephthah simply unwittingly and non-consciously offered his daughter's life in service at the tabernacle, 
you know, unilaterally without like talking to her, he still made a reckless vow. And in that instance, the lesson that we apparently learn is that we need to use our words more precisely, and that's a valuable lesson to learn along the way. The one other piece in this plot that we need to get to is the, the final piece, the faithful daughter. Remember her response to her father's foolish vow? What she specifically says is, my father, you have given your word to the Lord, do to me just as you promised. And by the way, there is a very clear parallel here to what we see in Abraham and Isaac. And for that matter, as a pointing ahead to what we see in the gospel, because listen to the summary here. What you have is a mourning parent, but a humble, complicit child who desires God's will above all else. The girl's only request is that she gets a couple months to spend with her friends, a couple months maybe traveling in the hills, and they want to mourn loss of future family with her. And Jephthah grants her that. And uh, again, the emphasis in the text is actually on her virginity. It's not on her impending death. And furthermore, the fact that they have some apparently four-day annual Jewish celebration that developed afterwards seems to suggest they're honoring something positive, i.e. like dedication to the Lord rather than just annually lamenting a foolish vow. What does this all mean? There's a a, a number of different applications we could take from this that I'm not actually going to spend much of any time on. One, the fact that even an individual as rough around the edges, as rugged and unrefined as Jephthah, God can and does use to accomplish his purposes, gives all of us, no matter how rugged uh, uh, or unrefined we may be, it gives all of us some encouragement that God does desire to use us. We're not beyond being used for the sake of the kingdom. A second obvious application point that I already touched on is this whole watching our words and speaking very carefully because words, it's the whole, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Right. Words are actually more powerful than sticks and stones because they can go places deeper than sticks and stones. So watch your words very carefully in life. But I actually think this is the right time after four weeks of studying judges to get into like a bigger, like a meta point that we've been making in all these lessons. And the point is this, our potential to be enslaved by worldly religion. I'm not saying be enslaved by worldly religions, Uh, like the various religions of the world, although they all function that way. I'm saying the religion of the flesh and how it operates and our propensity to fall into that irrespective of what we label ourselves as. Remember, if I go back to chapter 10, verse 6, what it said there is, again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Again they served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. The question is why? Why again? Why do God's people historically, whether it's the Israelites and judges or you and me and God's people still today, why do we repeatedly run back to the idols of this world even when we get chastised for it? And remember, the the definition we're using for idol is the idea idols are things or people that Satan tricks us into believing give us our meaning and our identity and our hope and our security. Generally speaking, they're good things, but they're good things other than Jesus that we look to to heal our wounds and calm our anxieties and solve all our problems. And they can take any form. They can take the form of a career, a romantic relationship, a beautiful family, your health, the approval of others, even morality. In fact, you've heard me say before that the three P's of American idolatry that I tend to point to are professional advancement, physical attractiveness, personal autonomy, freedom, and and comfort. 
Americans, I think, uniquely struggle with those things. Uh, but the point is they can take any form, and they can control our lives when we give in to them, especially if we don't even know that we're guilty of idolatry. Idolatry works because, look, the Israelites are forever running to the gods of the Canaanite culture, the Baals and the Ashtoreths. And every time that the Israelites fall in love with the idols of a certain nation, God allows that particular nation to enslave them. And we've seen this pattern again and again. We've seen it, uh, we, so far we've looked at Ehud and the, the Moabites, Jebra at the time of the Canaanite city-states, Gideon and the Midianites. This week it's Jephthah and the Ammonites. Next week it's going to be Samson and the Philistines. The pattern is the same, the exact, every time. The specific gods that the Israelites worship end up being the gods of the very people who enslaved them. You know what that means? I can briefly, succinctly say this. Idolatry leads to slavery. Idolatry always leads to slavery. And interestingly, not only does idolatry lead to slavery, but the slavery of idolatry leads to more idolatry. Now, what do I mean by that? Why don't the Israelites learn their lesson? Why, after God eventually, once again, graciously sets them free from their oppressors, why don't they think to themselves, oh, how stupid of us. Why did we worship those idols again and again? Why did we not just love and serve the one true God? Why do they keep going back? It's because, really interestingly, we humans are foolish enough that when we get enslaved by idols, we don't necessarily just give up on the idols. Sometimes we try to get actually more of the idols. And we think if we just make the right sacrifices, if we just serve those idols a little bit better, maybe they'll finally bless us. Let me give you one example, and I think this will click for you. Um, let's look at the idol of romantic relationship for a second. If you're the type of person who has an idol of romantic relationship, and some of you do, uh, you're willing practically to sacrifice anything. Friendships, time, energy, money, morality, maybe even a relationship with God, at the altar of the God of romantic relationship. And uh, inevitably, see, when you make something a God, that false God, it's eventually going to blow up because nothing other than Jesus can bear the weight of God in your life. And when it does blow up, what do false gods do to you? They curse you. See, false gods, they take and they take and they take and they cost so much and they give so little and yet the interesting thing is, if you've sacrificed everything at the altar of romantic relationship and it doesn't work out, most of the people I know, most of the people who I've worked with that have that particular false God, when they go through that process, they don't immediately think to themselves, hmm, I guess that was pretty foolish. I, I, I guess I shouldn't have that as a God. What they tend to think is I didn't sacrifice enough. I screwed it up. I didn't make the right sacrifices. I'll try again and I'll try harder than before. I've known people throughout my ministry who, like, this is the exact way their life plays out. Uh, in fact, I can think of somebody very specifically that I have in mind right now, but the number of years ago, a young woman who very clearly had some kind of idol of relationship, and I was actually trying to coach her and counsel her at that time and saying, like, this is going to cost you your relationship with the Lord because what you're doing in this relationship, it's completely unrepentant, it's completely, and, uh, and frankly, I don't think this guy is good for you. Uh, any guy who tells you he will break up with you if you do not have a sexual relationship with him outside of marriage, I have to believe is not Christ-like marriage material. You know what she said to me? 
She said, you don't understand. It's not that easy. So she kind of fell out of my life. A couple years later, she came back to me. She had the exact same problem. Not with the same boyfriend. That guy's long gone. He's a completely different guy. I said, do you see that this is the same relationship, this is the same thing played out again over and over? And she kind of laughed at that point, not laughed, but she chuckled a little bit and she said, it's ironic, I guess I'm turning into my mother. And what she was acknowledging is, look, yeah, we have a family idol of romance. And you know what idols do? Idolatry leads to slavery and then that slavery leads to deeper idolatry. And that is precisely the reason why when God punishes idolatry, do you know what he does? Did you catch this earlier when I was reading the first text? He sold the Israelites into idolatry with the foreign nations. He just let them go. He didn't do something to them. He took his hands off of them. God's punishment for idolatry is more idolatry. Go ahead. Uh, Anybody, any one of us in this room who has ever had an addiction before, you know exactly how this works. What does this have to do with, again, Jephthah? Well, in this particular lesson, we see in Jephthah a perfect example of a guy who is addicted to the idol of world religion. Now, again, I'm not talking about the different religions of the world. I'm talking about the religion of the flesh and all the other man-made religions of the world. They function according to the religion of flesh. They function according to meritocracy. The flesh understands that. The flesh gets, if I do good, then I get some rewards. And if I do bad, then I get some punishment. You don't need to be supernaturally otherworldly in order to stand that. Every world religion functions the same basic way in that regard. This is the reason why the most important question in this text is not what exactly did Jephthah vow when he made that foolish vow. The most important question is why does he make a vow? What on earth is he doing making a vow? Not what was the vow. That's an interesting question. Why is he vowing in the first? God had already called him. The spirit of God was already upon him. God had already ensured him a victory. Jephthah didn't have to make a sacrifice. He didn't have to do a good deed in order to ensure victory. God promised it freely, but that wasn't enough for Jephthah. See, Jephthah, he thought like the world. This is a guy who's a product of the world. He was a product of, he grew up around violence. And so the way he thought, the way he knew to get ahead in life is I'm going to out-violence the rest of the world. And he was pretty good at it. But he also picked up the surrounding culture's religious patterns. Even though he could identify who the true God was, the Lord God of Israel, he approached the Lord God the same way the pagans approached their pagan gods. He thought he had to earn his love. See, even if Jephthah could properly identify who the true God was, he didn't have any personal conception of a God whose character is defined by grace. I know that again because why doesn't he break the vow? Why doesn't he eventually just, okay, I made it, I said something stupid, I'll repent of that, I'll own up to it, I'll break the vow then. Why doesn't he break the vow? And I think the answer is he's trapped by a mistrust of God. See, he doesn't believe in a God who could forgive him just that easily. I think he's terrified of a God who would strike him down for his disobedience, his mistakes, his breaking of vows, just the way all the other gods of the world would. This teaches us two very important things about ourselves. Number one, you and I are far more affected by the religion of our culture 
and we realize your beliefs, my beliefs, are non-consciously and radically shaped by the broken religiosity of the world and the flesh around us. You know this. Because how do most of us go about forming our identities? Every time you hate yourself because you look a certain way or because you don't get the grade you think you should get or you don't get into the school you think you should get into or you fail at work in some way, shape, or form or you have some sort of moral failure in your life, every time you loathe yourself for any of those reasons, it proves that you are evaluating yourself by the measuring sticks of the world, not according to the grace of God. That leads me to the second point that we have to learn here. God's people really, really struggled to believe in a God simply of grace. This has happened ever since the fall into sin, back with Adam and Eve, back in the garden. Uh, From that moment on, humans have felt like we need to control God and pay God and deserve God and earn God because we don't completely trust that he's just going to love us and bless us because he's a gracious father. Right now in your life, just look at your life. Some of you are doing some things right now excessively, obsessively, and neurotically. Why? Why do you behave that way? Because deep down inside, we're trying to earn some kind of divine favor that our souls are craving for. And the reality is your Heavenly Father just wants to give it to you freely. And that's actually the only way you can receive it is if you say, I'm not going to try to earn it, I'm just going to let you love me. So that leads me to the second point here, a recklessly beautiful vow. How do I know that God wants to love you with that kind of, uh, we can debate semantics on the word recklessly, but uh, love you that kind of way at tremendous cost to himself. How do I know that? Well, God allowed Jephthah, a loving parent, to make a really foolish vow here. God could have intervened, he didn't. And why is this recorded for us? Not everything that happened in Old Testament history is recorded for us. Why is this recorded? I believe it's recorded for the exact same reason that everything that's recorded in the Old Testament is recorded for us, which is to point the head to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? See, Jephthah made a vow foolishly. He didn't know what he was doing. But actually, the Lord God made a very similar vow consciously. And he knew exactly what he was doing. He made a vow. See, in in a sense, Jephthah's vow was disgustingly reckless, but God's vow was beautifully reckless. God consciously made a vow that required the sacrifice of his own child at the altar of the cross. And his child would take upon himself the punishment for all of our mistakes, all of our sins, including our careless words, our impulsive recklessness, our cultural idolatry, And yet the son, just like Jephthah's daughter, the only thing he was concerned about was the father's glory first. And so he loved us unthinkably at great cost to himself. He redeemed us to eternal marriage with God and eternal family with God's people. Practically, what this means is all the stupid mistakes that we've made, and I have so many things that I've said at various points in the like that I never forget. It's like I can't believe, you know, but what gives me hope is I know that moving forward, all the mistakes we've made in the, in the past will be undone by grace. The contracts and the consequences of this world are all going to get ripped up eventually. God's wildly costly love means all our recklessness is going to get rectified. 
And I know that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, because the crucifixion of Jesus, the tearing apart of Jesus is the worst thing in world history, but God in grace, remade his body, brought him back to life. He undid the terrible things that were done to him. And whether it's terrible things that have been done to you or terrible things that you yourself have done, the grace of God and the resurrection of Jesus Christ will one day undo all of it. So let go of it. Let go of past mistakes. Celebrate the goodness of God through serving him in the present and watch your mouth in the future moving forward. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, these texts from Judges are intense and infinitely deep. And there's lots for us to learn. Wise principles for life. More importantly, we get to see these visions of your amazing grace that you would make vows and keep vows at unthinkable cost to yourself simply because you love us that much. Don't let us work for something that we already have. Let us just thank you for what we've already been given. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.